I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. Today we are talking about the movie Roman Holiday, which is a 1953 film that was directed and produced by William Wyler. It stars Gregory Peck um, as a reporter and Audrey Hepburn as a princess who is out to see Rome on her. The script was written by John Dighton and Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo was not credited because he was on the blacklist at the time. Um, instead, another writer named Ian McClellan Hunter fronted for him, and Ian McClellan Hunter is the one who's credited. The film was uh, shot on uh, location for the most part in Rome and also in a studio setting. So the plot is that Princess Anne is rounding out a European-wide goodwill tour across several cities in Europe. But when she gets to Rome, she uh, determines that she's really had quite enough of the endless parties and speeches and luncheons and other official duties she is assigned to, you know, morning till night. So she has a fit of hysteria, basically, her advisors give her a sedative, and she, she determines that she's going to sneak out into the Roman nightlife. Um, and that is where a reporter for the American News Service finds her and assumes from her behavior that she's just a co-ed who's had a little bit too much to drink. She ends up back at his place, and in the morning he discovers who she is, though she doesn't know that he knows, and a day of adventure, intrigue, and romance ensues. Yeah, it felt very against her will. Like, she was like, I'm really upset, guys. And they were like, well, you're not allowed to be upset, so we're giving you drugs. Yeah, you, <laughs> so you should have a drug like, now. Oh. Yeah, and, like, the needle, uh, I don't know, it gave me a bad vibe. Yeah, totally. Do you have any trivia about this movie? I do. There's a decent amount out there about this. Um, so this was Audrey Hepburn's first major role. Mm -hmm. And supposedly, after it was filmed, Gregory Peck told the producers that Audrey Hepburn was certainly going to win an Oscar for it. Oh. And they better put her name above the title. Wow. And they did. And then she did win the Oscar. Oh my God. Um, Good job, Gregory was, Peck. I know. He he saw it. Um, I even went back and watched some of the footage of her original screen test. Uh, cameraman kept the tape rolling, like, after she had done her part, because they just wanted to see her natural mannerisms. And you could see, like, that she was just a star. Mm -hmm. uh, so she, she won the Oscar, but she was completely overwhelmed. Um, she took the wrong route to get to the stage at the ceremony gave kind of a flabbergasted speech and then later left the trophy in the ladies room. <laughs> so, <laughs> it doesn't seem like she was expecting to win. Endearing. <laughs> I know. Um, one thing I read was that originally the Gregory Peck role was intended for Cary Grant and he refused it because he thought he was too old to be a love interest for Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> which is really funny because... You know, uh -huh. The first movie we covered on the podcast was Charade, where they played love interests. Yeah, and he just wait a few had years. an issue with it against he. I remember us saying he had an issue with it, but they worked it out and then became friends and really liked working together. So in the famous mouth of truth scene, uh -huh. uh, that Audrey Hepburn's reaction to Gregory Peck's bitten off hand was a genuine reaction because Peck quietly planned to borrow a red skeleton bit and have his hand hidden up his sleeve and he told the director 
but he didn't tell Hepburn. And then when she saw his missing hand, she genuinely did scream. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of hilarious. Another thing, which is is more on the sad side, was that since Audrey Hepburn was new to acting, in the scene where she was supposed to say goodbye to Joe at the end, uh, mm-hmm. she couldn't cry on command. So the director got so mad at her for wasting all of these takes with her not being able to cry that he yelled at her, and then she burst into tears. Oh. And then they filmed that, and then that was what they used. <laughs> I thought this was interesting. So have you watched The Crown at all? No. I So I watched it and, like, you know, have some knowledge of the British royal family, not, like, a crazy amount. But anyway, part of the reason this film was supposedly such a success was because people were so fascinated with Princess Margaret, who was Queen Elizabeth's sister, and she had this, like, highly publicized relationship with a commoner named Peter Townsend, who was actually, like, uh-huh. part of the household. But he was divorced and unsuitable, so... Princess Margaret was forced to renounce him. Oh, right. This script was written before that actually happened in real life, but because of the time it came out, sort of coincided with what was going on in her life, it got, like, a lot of attention. Oh, jeez. And the whole thing about, like, duty versus love. Mm-hmm. And Paramount had to make a deal with the British government that there would be no mention of a connection between the film and the royal household. Uh. Um, And they never actually say in the movie what country Mm -hmm. Princess Anne is from, but they do make a point of saying that she visited Britain to establish that she was not British. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, I was like, there is no end to the, like, media control and PR control of the British royal family. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that the original writer, Dalton Trumbo, was blacklisted, and he didn't receive credit for the screenplay, uh-huh. and then Ian McClellan Hunter took the credit, mm-hmm. and Trumbo's wife, Cleo, was finally presented with the award he should have gotten in 1993, long Jeez. after Trumbo's death. The Oscar she received was actually a second one, because Hunter's son refused to give up his father's Oscar. Wow. So there's actually two awards for best motion picture story of 1953 because, you know, both exist and were awarded to those men and, like, that that's just the way it is. But I was like, how could you be that petty that this poor man was denied this? And then yeah. you're like, nope, I'm not giving up mine, even though my dad didn't actually write this. And, and the last two pieces I have are both poetry-related. So uh-huh. Oh, oh good. Yeah, so we can get to the bottom of this. (laughs) They get into the argument over which poet wrote the words that Anne quotes, uh, Arethusa rose from her couch of snows in the Acroceronian mountains. Uh And Joe was actually right that it was was by Shelley from the poem Arethusa, which I did not know. Like, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. And it's always like, I should look that up to see who was right. And I never <laughs> knew until this point. It's a good thing we're doing a podcast episode about it. Yeah. But I that was a quote that um, me and my friends would often say, like, Keats, Shelley, Keats. Because you know mm-hmm. how, like, teenagers run around saying that kind of thing? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quoting old movies at each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another poetry spot in the plot where Princess Anne... Um, like, first meets Joe, and she's kind of half unconscious, 
from that sleeping drug that she received, and she says, If I were dead and buried when I heard your voice, beneath the sod my heart of dust would still rejoice. And then Joe calls her well-read. Well, that poem was actually an original by Dalton Trumbo, (laughs) the blacklisted screenwriter. And I just thought that was such a badass move to just be like, well, if I'm going to have a piece of poetry in this that is going to be lauded, then it will be mine. Yes. (laughs) It shall be my poetry. I would love to have the guts to do something like that. (laughs) So who did you bio for this movie? I bioed Eddie Albert. Who played... I liked him in this. Yeah. Well, uh, spoiler, we have already seen him in a movie. Did oh, what you... was it? Uh, wait, you'll have to, you'll have to wait for it. Okay. Uh, I'm on we'll, Tinterhooks. We'll get there. Because I didn't realize until I was looking at his bio. So, Eddie Albert Heimberger was born in Rock Island, Illinois. Fellow Midwesterner with me. He was the oldest of... Five children. He was born in 1906. When he was a year old, his family moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. He got his first job as a newspaper boy when he was six years old. During World War One, he was teased a lot because he had a German last name, which is unfortunate. He studied um, at Central High School in Minneapolis and um, participated in the drama club. Um, And he actually graduated in the same class as a girl named Harriet Lake, who was later known um, by her stage name, Anne Southern, who I haven't seen, you know, I don't know much about her, but her name seemed familiar to me. He went on to study business at the University of Minnesota, but he graduated, you know, just in time for the stock market crash in 1929, which, you know, foiled his business attempts. So he took on a bunch of odd jobs, working as a trapeze performer, an insurance salesman, a nightclub singer. He, During this period, while he was starting to perform, he stopped using his last name professionally because it kept getting mispronounced um, as hamburger. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah, I bet you can. <laughs> um, he moved to New York City in 1933, where he um, got a job... Uh, co-hosting the radio show The Honeymooners, Grace, the Grace and Eddie show, which ran for three years, um, and it was the thing that um, clinched a film contract with Warner Brothers. Um, but during the 30s, he performed in a number of Broadway stage productions, um, and some of them were just you know side roles, some of them were lead roles. He, in 1936, he became one of the earliest television actors, um, doing a, a live... RCA television broadcast uh, with NBC, which was just a promo for one of their New York City radio stations. So he did a TV ad to promote radio. Because of that, he performed regularly on early television, wrote the first teleplay, which was called The Love Nest. While he was doing that, he also starred in the 1938 Broadway musical The Boys from Syracuse, and that sort of helped him like sort of cement a role, um, a connection with... Um, Hollywood. He continued to act on Broadway, and then before he really jumped into films, he um, he toured Mexico as a clown before World War II started, before his film took off. There's a story that he was a clown, but he was actually secretly working for U.S. Army intelligence, and <clears throat> so, you know, photographing German U-boats in the Mexican harbors. 
I don't know oh, if that's true. that's pretty cool. Yeah, so basically he was a spy. In September 1942, he enlisted in the Coast Guard, was discharged to accept an appointment as a lieutenant in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He was awarded the Bronze Star for his actions during the invasion of Tarawa in November 1943, and he got the Bronze Star because he rescued 47 Marines who were stranded offshore. So, decorated. (laughs) A decorated soldier. He left after the war. He started um, appearing in leading roles in Hollywood. But he, like, the whole time he was sort of, you know, he kept working in in TV series. Um, And from 1948 to the end of his career, he started nearly 90 different television shows. Just crazy. Um, Probably crazy because he kept working at Broadway. He kept working in movies, including The Seven Year Itch on Broadway. And then in 1960, he replaced Robert Preston in the lead role of Professor Harold Hill in The Music Man. Um, And he went on. He he played that role actually a couple of times and also played Alfred Doolittle in My Fair Lady. He kept acting in movies in the 1950s, including The Sun Also Rises. Carrie, and then he was nominated for his first Oscar as Best Supporting Actor in Roman Holiday in 1953, excuse me. And then, in 1955, he played a womanizing Persian peddler in the movie Oklahoma, <gasps> where he saw, where we saw him. What? Yep. <laughs> I know. Oh I my totally gosh. Mad. Yep. Okay. Yep. I'm having trouble, like, the two men just merged in my mind, and I'm, Okay. Uh, yep. I see it now, but it's just such a different role. I d- would never have guessed that was the movie he was in. Yeah, well, and he's was in a whole bunch of like things. So I, we probably also seen him in other things. I didn't recognize a lot of the movies and TV shows that he was in, but he was in a lot of things, including in 1965 he started um, appearing in a TV show called Green Acres, which was an immediate hit. It lasted for six seasons, 170 episodes. He just worked tirelessly even, like, through that, like, success, you know, both on film, or on TV and film. And, um, but in addition to all of that work, he and his uh, wife, who was the Mexican actress Margot, were, they were both well-known political activists. He was particularly active in a lot of social and environmental causes, particularly related to trees, which was, like, amazing. Um, they were both blacklisted in the 1950s, but their son later said that because of Albert's military service during World War II, um, that sort of, once sort of the, the scare was over, his career could continue. And the fact that he was a clown spy. How about I mean, that? Yeah, how about that? He was so involved in political and social and environmental causes that TV Guide actually called him an ecological Paul Revere. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 1995 um, and died 10 years later of pneumonia at the age of 99. And he was interred um, at the Westward Village Memorial Park Cemetery next to his late wife um, and near his Green Acres co-star Eva Gabor. So he had a very long, full, productive life, which what more can you ask for? Yeah, that's great. I I really liked him in this, and I feel like he's sort of my platonic male sidekick friend. Yeah, totally. His whole demeanor in this. Yeah. And yeah, I just thought he was really good and very likable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, totally. Like him as a person, not necessarily that his character was, I mean, his character was likable, but I just think him as an actor is very likable. Mm -hmm. Who did you bio? So I bioed Paolo Carlini, and this is going to be short because I couldn't find a lot about him, but he played Mario the Barber, uh -huh. um, who cuts Princess Anne's hair and then invites her to go dancing and then dances with her on the barge and then like jumps into the fight, <laughs> even mm -hmm. though he, you know, has no real skin in the game. Paolo Carlini was born in January 1922, and he was an Italian stage, television, and film actor. Mm. Uh, he appeared in 45 films between 1940 and 1979. This movie was his best-known to international audiences. Really what he's most remembered for now was this role as Mario the Barber. He was born in San Arcangelo, I don't know, I'm going to butcher this Italian stuff, <laughs> people are going to write in, Di Romana, and mm -hmm. Carlini followed the acting courses held by actress Teresa Francini and debuted at a very young age on the stage. He is regarded as one of the early stars of Italian television miniseries, um, which is still like a popular thing now. Um, and he's well known for his association with actress Leah Pandovani with whom he starred in a number of critically acclaimed stage dramas in the 50s. This is my favorite fact about him, and what I will leave you with. <laughs> Although it's a rumor, not a fact. Aside from his long film career, he attained notoriety as the rumored partner of Giovanni Montini, Archbishop of Milan. What? Latterly, Pope Paul VI. What? Yeah. So, potentially, he was the paramour of the Pope. Uh-huh. Which I find fascinating, and and I think if, I'm going to have to do a deep dive into this. Yeah, later. I, like, hmm, you know, I when you said you were going to do him, like, bio him, I was sort of thinking, oh, this might be just a run-of-the-mill actor bio, but this... This is not a run-of-the-mill actor bio. No. I mean, it's it's a short and sweet. Um, it sounded mm -hmm. like he was better known in Italian film and television. Sure. Um, but I should ask my in-laws if they know of him. I bet they do. Oh, yeah. Do that. So should we get into it? Yes. Yes. Um, and Hillary, had you seen this movie before? Um, I had seen it once before, but a long time ago. I think I had a, sort of a basic idea of what this movie was about, but I didn't really know. Well, I had seen it a bunch when I was younger, like a bunch of times, and always really liked it. And this is kind of... I didn't realize that this was Audrey Hepburn's first big role. Mm -mm, I didn't realize um, that either. But Because uh, I always thought of this as like, this is my quintessential Audrey Hepburn movie. And it, yeah. Um, Actually, she was, like, just getting started, so... Yeah. It falls into the category of movie that I really like, which is that the people can't be together in the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I like that. And then all of the... <laughs> That's so was, sad, Emily. <laughs> I just... It's... Longing is romantic. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I also wrote in my notes... God, I love movies about reporters who are selling a story as a last-ditch effort to keep their jobs, which is basically what happened in It Happened One Night. Yeah. Like, this is basically the the Italian version of It Happened One Night. Yes, and actually, uh, I didn't mention this in the trivia, but originally Frank Capra optioned this script because it was supposed to be like the Italian It Happened One Night. <laughs> and then I, I mean, think he backed away is. from it. 
Yeah, except like swap high society girl with princess, and that's like, and there's not as much of a road trip element, but pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he um, he backed away from it because of the blacklist association. So oh. I know that was like, I thought I liked you. <laughs> but, I I really love that the movie was filmed on location and had like all the beautiful scenery and I think this is like a lot of the places in this movie I saw when I was like a teenager and thought were incredible and then like one day when I got to see them in person I just was like I'm in Roman Holiday I'm in Roman <laughs> Holiday <laughs> yeah it's like a two hour ad for how wonderful Rome is in case anyone yeah you know didn't know um, so did. Did you like the characters of Princess Anne and Joe? I think one of my other notes was this movie is basically him just following her around. Uh, and there was another, I think I specifically said, I don't, oh, and then another, another note, I don't like Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was one of the things that struck me watching it this time is that, you know, I still really like this movie. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Like, I watched it a bunch when I was sort of, like, high school and college and had not seen it since. And this time watching it, I got, like, a slightly creepier vibe from him. And we can talk about, like, some of the consent stuff and all that's going on in the movie. But just the fact that, like, the entire time he's lying to her and trying to, like, get something from her. And also that he, like, follows her around... Following her around not to make sure she's okay, like in an unfamiliar city, he's following her around so he can keep tabs on her so that he can write a story about her without her knowledge and make $5,000. I mean, I guess it like works out in the end because in the end he refuses to sell the story. It felt like he was, he was like a mature man taking advantage of a young girl. Yep. And he had full knowledge of what was going on. Like, they were both lying to each other, but he had full knowledge. She didn't. The other side of that is that, like, he sees her, you know, the night he meets her, he sees her, he thinks that she's just a drunk girl, and he, like, calls a taxi for her, and is just like, go where you need to go. So he, like, is trying to just, like, make sure she gets home safely. And then, you know, and then he... He's like, okay, I'll get the ca- in the taxi too, and then he like pays for a taxi to take her somewhere, and the taxi driver won't take her, and so then he's like, okay, well then she can just come up to my place and she can sleep it off and whatever. It's only when he realizes who who she is that he's like, oh well, this is totally fair game, which like Irving says at the very end, it's always open season on princesses. Which, like, is kind of how he was acting at the beginning. Like, once he found... Like, he wasn't taking advantage of her until he knew she was a princess. Yeah. So... And I've heard that... I think that is a real thing that it's... Like, in terms of ethics and journalism, like, if someone's a public figure... I mean, that's basically how Princess Diana died. She was chased by paparazzi. Yeah. Yeah, can we talk about the whole... Yeah, that whole thing with her, like, basically being asleep on the street and then him trying to get her home safely. I had this, so, like, obviously he, like, was a gentleman, nothing happened. But, like, just because of life, I had this, like, real feeling of dread watching it this time. Mm -hmm. And just being like, oh my gosh, he's taking this young comatose girl, like, up to his room you know not fully aware of what's going on where she is like any of that stuff she's basically like undress me (laughs) yeah and and I was just thinking I cannot imagine a movie being made today 
where someone would act the way he did in that scenario. Yeah. Meaning that he doesn't actually take advantage of her in that moment. Yeah, like, no, not in any kind of physical way. Yeah. I think Um, you're right. Which is depressing. Yeah. (laughs) But, so, it made me think about consent and how, like, she, she sleeps in his apartment twice. The second time, after they've kissed and are, like, clearly in love, and he still is respectful of her. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess I might not like that he's lying to her, but... At least he, like, respects her her own ownership over her body, I guess. Yeah. I think I also had questions about, like, when exactly he developed feelings for her. Because the... It seems like immediately know, following the fight, they're, like, in the water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're in the water, and then they get out of the water, and they start making out. And it's... Which, by the way, they both look very good wet. Like, I thought that was a romantic <laughs> first kiss scene and all of that but but I was just kind of like just like basically five minutes ago you were still setting up camera shots yeah and but and also can we just talk about how there's no way that she didn't know that someone had taken a picture of her at like when they were using the actual camera and the flash and all like he was doing it during that fight scene he was doing it like openly yeah yeah not very discreet (laughs) no but, like, so, I just, I guess I just didn't understand when did he actually develop feelings for her, because yeah. she was kind of being great, like, all along, and he was just like, no, little girl, let's go here, and, like, I'll keep using you this way and this way, and all of a sudden, he was like, actually, I'm in love with you. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it does seem like it, like, it happened somewhere between taking those photos at the dance and when they got out of the water after the fight which is not that long (laughs) (laughs) um i did think that fight scene was great though yeah where they're like the the secret service agent like is pulling on irving's beard and like she smashes a guitar on someone's head (laughs) i know it was a pretty great fight (laughs) (laughs) that was great um my best friend and i in high school we're obsessed with that whole concept of having a dance hall on a barge. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to have, like, one day create our own dockside dance hall that everyone would come to with live music. But um, Now you can just go to Mushaloo. Yeah, now I can just go to Mushaloo. <laughs> Someone beat us to it. And it's not quite the same. No, it's not quite the same. You, you might just have to go to Rome, Emily, and go dancing That's there. That's true. Um, did you like all the, like, moped scenes? I, I mean, in the scene where she was, she was driving the moped, I was like, why, I don't understand why this is going on so long. Why isn't he just reaching up and, like, isn't there a handbrake? And (laughs) That's true, I thought that too. I was like, this should, like, someone should get control of this vehicle by this point. (laughs) Yeah, like, somebody, like... Or, like, stop the vehicle. Like, this should go on for, like, a block, and then it tips over. Because you wouldn't be going very fast. I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, they just needed an excuse to go, like, show some more parts of Rome, I guess. Yeah. I did read, when I was, like, looking into this movie, that the fact that this, like, the moped 
figured so prominently, it really increased American interest in them and like people wanting to buy them. Which I'm not surprised because I mean I wanted to buy a moped after watching this. Yeah, totally. They looked fun. You could like ride past the Coliseum. I want to talk about her haircut, but I don't know if that is more, like, fashion or if we can talk about it now. Well, uh, it's our podcast, so we can decide, and we should talk about it now. (laughs) I love it so much. I know. (laughs) I love it, and I just, I loved watching that whole scene where she's getting it cut and the barber. It actually reminded me of when I first cut my hair short. Like, I Mm -hmm. went from having long hair to having, like, a completely short cut. And the hairdresser kept, like, trying to convince me not to make... Like, she was like, well, are you sure? Like, maybe you just want to go to, like, chin length or something like that. And I kept being like, no. And it was just, like, when Princess Anne was Mm -hmm. like, no, shorter, shorter, shorter. And then then she was, like, crying. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not that I was. I was just kind of happy that it was off. But it did remind me of, like, sometimes hairdressers don't respect your decisions. Yeah. Well, but then it was cute. There there was sort of the follow-up scene on the barge where he, like, he gets out his little comb after they're dancing and is like, wait, I just need to fix this this little thing with your bangs, which I just thought was, like, yes. endearing. He was like... I love that. I love that he had his pocket comb. Well, yeah. So, like, <laughs> the tools of the trade. I thought it was really cute. And I liked that it, like, got all curly when it was short. It was, maybe it was a wig. Yeah. I don't know. Was it a wig? Must have been I a think, wig. Well, when I was looking at the screen test, it looked like that was her haircut. That it was short then, like with the bangs in front. So, Well, maybe the long hair was a wig then. But know. yeah, I thought it looked great on her. And it did make her look more like a girl about town. Yeah. Yeah, instead of this like old-fashioned long-haired haircut. Yeah. <laughs> did you like how she listed the skills that she had that were actually skills she had learned as a royal and it was like cooking cleaning sewing and ironing yeah i wanted to be like yeah public speaking manners that are like how to be gracious in multiple countries (laughs) yeah like diplomacy right likely speaking several languages like (laughs) sure cleaning is important but And I was trying to imagine, like, the royal lessons where they were like, and this is how you iron. Like, no way did they teach her to iron. No. No way. She might have watched the Countess do it once or twice, but, yeah. It's pretty funny. Um, (laughs) So I thought a lot of the Italian characters were really funny, but Mike was watching part of it with me, and he was like, these are all caricatures. Of course. (laughs) And I I was like, um... This is probably offensive. (laughs) I was thinking a lot of the movie um, Open City, which is the movie that Ingrid Bergman left her husband for Roberto Rossellini over. Oh. But it's set in Rome. It's filmed in Rome. And most of the people who are in it are Italians who are not actors. They're just, like, there and were coaxed into saying a few words. Anyway, I kept thinking that that's the only... I don't know if it's the only other movie I've seen that's set in Rome, but I kept think like making comparisons of like, oh yeah, these are like caricatures of Romans and versus the actual Romans in Open City. And actually, I was thinking about what Mike would have to say about these times. Well, the the scene that read true to me was when they crash the moped into a bunch of people, mm-hmm. and then they go to court, and then 
Joe makes up a lie that they were going to get married, and then the the whole crowd is like congratulating and kissing them. <laughs> yes, I would. That felt true to me because it is like I do feel like it's a culture where people will turn on a dime and just be like, "Oh, you have this big life event. I love you." Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's all because of a wedding. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> I thought, oh, and Mike laughed out loud. Like, some of the things people were saying in Italian that didn't have subtitles, oh, mm-hmm. um, he was laughing out loud at with the the guy who was, like, the sentinel, <laughs> like, standing guard uh-huh. at the apartment. Um, and when he tried to get him to loan him money, and he was like basically saying in Italian, like, are you crazy? Like, you're gonna, I'm going to give you money and you're going to double it back. Like, yeah, right. Um, which seemed right. And, like, some of the gestures they were making, I was like, these are real gestures. Yeah. That's funny. Um, Did he watch a lot of the movie with you or just parts of it? Just parts of it, but he's seen it before. Okay. Of course. Right. Did you know this was, like, the first comedy that Gregory Peck had ever done? No. Is it really? Uh, yeah, I think up until this point he had only been in dramas. So I think he actually wanted to make a change in his career. Yeah. I, I did. Did you think it was funny, although also kind of mean, when he kept, like, spilling stuff on his friend and, like, knocking his chair over I mean, stuff? like, it, the first time I was like, uh, yeah, he's too bad guy. You, you know, you gotta get the message somehow. But when he had to do it the second time, like, why didn't he get the message of like oh yeah the last time he did this to me he was trying to get me to stop talking so maybe i'll stop talking yeah yeah irving was pretty slow on the uptake Mm -hmm. Um, yeah he wasn't he was like a good friend i guess but like he was and a good photographer but not not the brightest and when they showed him as in his apartment was he taking like risque photos to sell (laughs) is that basically what he's doing there was like it was a very strange setup with a woman like, holding a fishing pole over a railing with, like, bare legs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some kind of something. Who knows? <laughs> no. But I did like that apartment. I was like, I would like to live in an apartment that had an interior balcony. That sounds great. Yeah. I thought, in general, like, the European apartments looked good. Yeah. And appealing. I mean, I um, I liked um, Joe Bradley's apartment, except for when he was like, oh, yeah, I don't have a kitchen, so I have to eat out all the time. I was like, oh yeah, that kind of would stink. I think that used to be more common, that it was more like you were yeah. boarding. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people people do it that much anymore. Like, I had a relative who had a setup like that, and he really liked it, because he was like, hey, I don't cook, and yeah. I'm paying less for this apartment because it doesn't have a kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, and you could probably, like, figure it out, uh, you know. Yeah, you would just figure out the haunts you could go to and not pay too much money. Yeah, like, if you if you think about it, if you had, like, a kettle, mm-hmm. a microwave, and a hot plate, like, you'd be fine. Yeah. Which is what, we've been watching a lot of um, Mary Tyler Moore recently, and that's oh. what's in that's what's in Rhoda's apartment. She has a hot plate and a kettle. Um, that's all you need. Yeah. Caffeine will keep you going. That's right. <laughs> and you can heat up a can of beans or something. That's right. You can't do it if you're more than one person, I don't think. But Yeah, that's true. What did you think of... The ending of the movie. I was surprised by it. Like, I kept thinking, oh, is she going to come running back out and give him a hug? But, like, then I was like, well, how's that going to work? So I guess it's the, like, realistic ending that they, like, they've 
come to an understanding that like it was a beautiful day that they had and they're ne- neither one of them is going to forget it and like that's just the the happy ending that they get you know i don't know how i don't know what other kind of ending it could have what did you think uh well i really loved how it unfolded so slowly mm-hmm. like it it did make me think again that like i don't know if they would have had long like a long scene like that in a contemporary movie where it's just a lot of like very slow face acting and like the scene where she greets the journalists they literally show her greeting every single one in the line which i you know was it took a while (laughs) so yeah i liked that like there was a lot of tension and the unfolding of her understanding of what was going on was really beautiful too because at first she sees them and she thinks that they've betrayed her but then they sort of reveal that they haven't betrayed her and then a lot of it is just like her she's supposed to have a composed face but also be like showing what she's feeling and then he's doing the same thing and considering that was her first major role I thought the face acting was really good yeah yeah, it was like it was kind of nice that it was so slow and so like focused on the like sort of the development of their facial expressions. Um, and the very last shot where he's walking away, mm-hmm. I thought was great too. Because even though I've seen this movie a bunch of times, I still found myself thinking like, "Oh, is she going to come back out?" I know, or something? but I of know. course, no. He just leaves, and that's the end. And yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's so sad and also happy because, you know, they got to see each other one more time, which she didn't know was going to happen, and then, surprise, he was there. Which I kind of like, you know, that she got, they both got a little bit of closure. Yeah. Oh, beautiful girl, what a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl, let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> I have a lot of notes about them. <laughs> okay, you tell me what what you want to say about costumes because I don't know that I have a lot of notes. I just have a lot of exclamation points, basically. <laughs> well, I really loved her wandering around Rome outfit. Mm-hmm. And I liked how over the course of her time away from the palace like the outfit changes like she rolls up her sleeves Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she gets the kerchief and all of that and I just thought that to me like as a young person like I was like this is the quintessential Roman girl Mm -hmm. I thought she looked great I think I've bought like skirts in that style maybe like 17 times (laughs) like trying to get back to that like perfect skirt Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um I just thought she looked great and um, a lot of the princess stuff, too, looked good. Like, the boat neck gown that she had in the beginning mm-hmm. was really nice. Oh, yeah. That was the um, thing that I wrote. Gorgeous! Exclamation point. <laughs> and then at the end, she wore ca- kind of a coat dress, which is sort of back in vogue with the royals. I don't know. Maybe it never left. Mm-hmm. And I thought she looked really good with that. I, I wasn't crazy about the hat. Yeah. I'm... Yeah, I mean, but it's Audrey Hepburn, so, you know, everything she wears looks adorable. Yeah, she looks great, always. Yeah. Um, So I thought she was great. This isn't really fashion, but I have to comment that both she and Gregory Peck have amazing eyebrows. (laughs) I felt like they were well-matched in their eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) Because he seemed to perpetually have, like, one eyebrow raised, and then she just had, like... 
that gorgeous brow. Yeah. So that was great. And then I don't have like a huge amount to say about Gregory Peck, except that he did look really good in the suits Mm -hmm. that he wore. He was like, I think just that his physique, that sort of like tall, lean type looked great. Although I, I did notice when he was at one point like getting dressed or something that it was that sort of blousy pleated pant that I'm not crazy about, but it was mostly covered by the suit suit jacket. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then it was sort of neat to see him during most of the movie sort of wandering around in a in just a suit that looked that seemed fine. And then at the very end when they're at the interview, he's wearing a significantly nicer suit that he's like buttoned up. He's like clearly like ready to go make an impression. And that was kind of a, that was nice to see just that contrast between the two sets of outfits. I didn't even notice that. Oh, really? That's a good eye. Well, you know, a a good reporter suit is something I notice. I guess. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice that this falls into my like category of um, leads that I like where it's like, a ne'er-do-well journalist. <laughs> I know. I next, feel like every movie I like is just, that's the male lead. I I think next season, we should just do ne'er-do-well reporter movies. Okay. I mean, I'm totally down for that. We just have to watch His Girl Friday again. That's my only caveat. Yes. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. So, did you think that there was a social justice message? I mean, I think there was something to be said about, like, the royals who are, like, forced to do all kinds of things without making, you know, without having a a choice in it. But on the other hand, you know, they live a pretty good life. So, you know, not really a hardship for them. Yeah, so maybe not, like, a social justice message, but for me more of a, like every single day matters and you can make you know the happiness of a lifetime in one day yeah I think it did make me think about like sort of the purpose of royalty at this point and it still seems like to this day there's a lot of we can't have positions on things yeah. like we're supposed to be neutral and it, you could tell in all her speeches that it was like this is just supposed to be like vaguely positive but with no real specifics and it could work in any scenario and i'm just a symbol and that still seems to be the case Mm -hmm. so yeah i don't know if there's a social justice message in there but like maybe like stand for something or (laughs) yeah because not everybody is allowed to stand for something (laughs) yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean that that is just our response being social justice, not mm-hmm. And there is the whole, like, duty versus following your heart. Tension. Um, but I don't know that people would always say that doing your duty is the right thing in terms of justice, depending. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I think it's complicated. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. What about Bechtel? She's the only woman in the movie, right? Well, oh, I was thinking that she has her contacts. Does pass. Yeah. And a lot of the the movie is, in terms of the dialogue, mm-hmm. it is not primarily talking about relationships. That's true. And men. It's mostly just talking about, like, hopes and dreams and, like, culture and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, and there is the Countess who's her, like, right-hand woman... And their conversation is just about, like, duty and work and the schedule and, you know, what she has to do the next day. So it's not about romance. 
So you're right. I think it passes. I mean, it's not, it's not, I would say, like, super feminist, but it, yeah, it definitely is concerned with more than just relationship. relationship. True. So what rating would you give this movie, Hill? Well, I was thinking about it earlier today, trying to think about what rating I would give it, and I was, you know, like, feeling compelled to give it a pretty low rating, but I'm just kind of rethinking that now just based on our conversation and uh, particularly our conversation about um, uh, Bradley and how what he does before he knows she's a princess versus afterwards. And I think it was a little bit slow moving for me. Like it is 38 minutes into this two hour movie before the story between the two of them gets going. That was a little slow. Yeah. That felt a little bit slow for me. Um, so I might give it a three and a half. Okay. What about you? I don't know. This is hard because I just generally like this movie a lot. Like, if this is a movie that I, if I'm feeling like, hey, I want to feel like I'm going on a vacation, I'll watch it. <laughs> you know? Like, it's so I do go back to it a lot. And I mean, like I said, I because of some time passing, I got a little bit of a different vibe from Joe. But, like, the scenery's great. Audrey Hepburn's great. I think I'd probably give it, I wanna, I'm want i going to say a 3.9. <laughs> Fair. Because um, I feel like in my heart it's up to a 4. Mm-hmm. But I also, it made me think about, didn't Jen say that she doesn't think Gregory Peck's a very good actor? Yep. Because <laughs> like when I was watching him this time, I, I wouldn't say he was bad, but, like, I thought Audrey Hepburn's performance was so good mm-hmm. that it made me think that he wasn't that good. I mean, he's definitely better than the last movie we saw him in when he was a lot younger. Yeah. But I still thought he wasn't great. Like, he's he's very handsome. He has a great voice. Yeah, right. But I was kind of like, you kind of only have, like, one or two notes. Yeah. His main role in... <laughs> in life and movies is to like be the beautiful beautiful voiced uh tall man that like the good actresses play against <laughs> just stand there yeah, so that Inger I mean, Bergman can I never thought I would say that either because I always liked him <laughs> yeah. Jenner, but he's kind of like a poor man's Jimmy Stewart <laughs> I mean he's like he's more handsome but yes. <laughs> but not as good of an actor <laughs> yeah I'm, yeah, I mean, people I, are gonna at us about this. Listen, my dad is gonna at us about this. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> oh yeah, because I didn't think about To Kill a Mockingbird, and oh gosh, <laughs> people are really gonna at us. You know, he's like most actors. He's good in some movies, bad in others. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's human. So, what can we say, um, what is our next movie? Our next movie is Stormy Weather. Ooh, exciting. Something very different. That's right. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.